Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to WDF Asks, Is Westphalia Overrated? Part 1. If you don't know what's about to befall you, I would suggest you check the introduction episode just before this one to get up to speed with what WDF Asks is all about. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy this special series. Just to reiterate, don't worry, the Franco-Dutch War is on the way, but since it's basically my birthday, well, a week ago... I figured I'd give you this as a kind of reverse present to me. I will now take you to the hallowed halls of debate, where we ask the apparently straightforward question, is Westphalia overrated? The Treaties of Westphalia were signed after much negotiation and argument in the German cities of Osnabrück and Münster over the course of the 1640s, and their signing ended the conflict which had raged across Europe in different forms since 1618, when Bohemian magnates and citizens threw their Habsburg masters out the windows of the Prague Town Hall. 
Such an event sparked a fire of religious warfare, great power struggles and consistent foreign intervention as more and more states got involved for different reasons. The conflict became intense for the Protestant states in 1630 when Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden got involved, and he proved a boon for their fortunes, though he died two years later in battle. The next important stage came in 1635 when Cardinal Richelieu, the French premier, launched France into the abyss, and the war shifted from largely religious in makeup to one of dynastic interest of Bourbon versus Habsburg. The years that followed saw a gradual breakdown in the economies, the infrastructure and the agriculture of the European parties, especially for those that were closest to the fighting, such as the German states, parts of the Netherlands and parts of France. The conflict was terrible and exhausting enough to warrant equally exhausting peace negotiations, which were tasked with solving the problems that had plagued Europe since the Reformation had divided Christendom. Tasks which included cementing the religious peace, brokering peace between Spain and the Dutch after 80 years of war in their case, and reducing the powers of the Habsburg Emperor in the Holy Roman Empire, leading to a growth in German state formation and a severing of the close ties between the Austrian and Spanish Habsburg families. The European balance of power, which had rested surely in the Habsburg favour since the early 1500s, now seemed to have been transformed. A combination of different states, perhaps with France ahead of the pack, would now compete for this mantle. With Westphalia signed, could Europe now be able to begin a new era of peace? To enter the early modern era, as some historians have suggested Westphalia led to? Well, not exactly. What followed 1648 was more war. War for different reasons, but also for reasons eerily similar to what Europe had seen before. Then Louis XIV took root, and France eclipsed the Habsburgs at the top of the European food chain for good, essentially replacing the old order with its new power base, fueled and expanded by the ambitious young Sun King. After 1648, issues that remained critical for crowned heads and statesmen alike in many ways resembled those that had so enthralled and occupied Europeans in the decades before 1648. Questions of religion and how it related to loyalty towards the state, questions of expansion into foreign markets, the idea of building a coalition to halt an aggressive power, economic competition and the impact of naval power, the monarch's relationship to the state, and the Holy Roman Emperor's ability to mobilise his German subjects, all of these were issues which cropped up intermittently before 1648. Yet all of these can also be found after 1648, after the Peace of Westphalia. For many historians of the so-called early modern period of history, which can essentially mean anything from 1500 onwards, some like to claim that it began in the Reformation, the Thirty Years' War and Westphalia represent formative events in the European psyche. Europeans had battled and warred against one another for a certain set of values and principles, and after 1648 they no longer did. This is the massively simplified version, but some historians would contend that the value of Westphalia is in the fact that it demonstrated how bad warfare on such a scale was, and so to prevent it occurring again, Europe should solve its issues at the bargaining table. It's a situation which sounds remarkably similar to the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, 
and I don't have to tell you how that turned out. After the Peace of Westphalia, wars broke out again in rapid succession. Within a decade, many of the powers who had made peace were at each other's throats on a smaller scale than the Thirty Years' War. But within less than 30 years, after 1648, Europe was consumed by the flames of wider wars again. And with the formation of coalitions and the destruction of lives making their joint returns. This shows us an important fact that is worth reinforcing. Westphalia did not make the years following 1648 more peaceful. What was different was the fact that Europeans were now fighting for different reasons. This, so historians claim, is what makes the Peace of Westphalia stand out in history as a critically important peace treaty, important enough in fact to warrant its status as a watershed moment between the old and the new ways of doing things. But how accurate are such claims? When we ask whether Westphalia is overrated or not, what we mean is whether it deserves its place in the historical Hall of Fame. The Peace of Westphalia sits alongside the Congress of Vienna in 1815 and the Treaty of Versailles in 1919 as fundamentally important treaties, pieces and congresses which brought Europeans and humanity closer to the modern age. Though the last two treaties occur only a century apart, the Peace of Westphalia ushered in, some historians believe, a level of stability not seen in Europe until the French Revolution dramatically ushered in a new age of statecraft, nationalism, and of course warfare. But can we really attribute so much praise to Westphalia, and to what the statesmen of Europe did in the two German cities of Osnabrück and Münster up to 1648? Does that peace deserve the level of significance that history has attributed to it since, or is it merely another case of history being placed into boxes by historians eager to separate one era from the next? Let's investigate. In this episode, we'll examine how states gained greater sovereignty and freedom to act on the diplomatic stage thanks to the end of the Holy Roman Emperor and the papacy's historical right to have the final say over policy. Religious and other considerations will factor into our examination too, but I need to make two important points before we really get into this. First of all, for the sake of convenience, in this episode we're not going to play devil's advocate. Instead, I will show you the bank of evidence that the pro-Westphalians like to point to in order to justify the piece's significance. The next episode is when we attempt to see things from the other side, and who knows what will happen after that. Second, and in reference to that pro-Westphalian camp, for the duration of this special of WDF Asks, I will be referring to supporters of the Westphalia school of thought, people that think Westphalia is massively important as a treaty, and just fans of the Peace of Westphalia in general, as Westphalians. I do this because it's easier and faster than saying fans of Westphalia, and we won't really have need to talk about the inhabitants of that portion of Germany, so I hope humans from that portion of such a lovely republic don't think I'm referring to them. The reason why I hope they don't think I'm referring to them is because in the next episode, and don't worry I'll remind you guys of this, I will be referring to those that think the Peace of Westphalia is overrated as anti-Westphalians. It's just easier, alright? 
It's not because people that think the peace of Westphalia is overrated are against the humans that live in Westphalia. You might think I don't have to clarify this and that people will just get it, but you've never seen my emails, and 2016 is genuinely the year that everyone got offended. So this is to save the, oh, but Zerk, oh, Westphalians, email. I hope you understand. Actually, there is another important reason to clarify this as well. When we talk in this episode about things that historians believe the Peace of Westphalia has achieved, we will say that Westphalians think this, or even according to Westphalians, because it injects a level of uncertainty to the debate, and above all it lets me present the views of a certain camp to you guys without presenting those views as inarguable fact. As your presenter, such objectivity is important, especially if we were to make this last the three episodes without giving the game away from the start. So yes, Westphalians means that they think the Peace of Westphalia is not overrated, that they like the Peace of Westphalia, and that they are fans of Westphalia. You get it. Right. Fabulous. Now let's begin. As we know, war continued in the years after 1648, And these wars dragged virtually all powers in, so that by 1715, when Louis XIV died, barely ten years of peace across the European continent had been experienced. Only a few years after Louis XIV's death, Europe would be in arms again, and virtually every decade of the 18th century tells the same story. We know also what happened in the 19th century. The longest period of peace that human beings have experienced in historical memory is the current one, but even that comes with notable caveats. The point is, war has been an unfortunate constant of human history, so we clearly cannot state that Westphalia made statesmen or monarchs take a more cautious view of war. On the other hand, and to radically change the subject, what it did do was instill a level of respect, or perhaps equality would be the better term, for the three recognised religious persuasions of the day. Lutheran, Catholic, and the latest edition, Calvinist. We're not here to go into what made each of these denominations different, but it bears remembering that the differences had been enough in the past to group interested parties together, or push certain figures towards a certain policy, at the expense of other interests. Think Ferdinand II's insistence on the Edict of Restitution, for example, even though it mightily ticked off the other Protestant electors of the Holy Roman Empire, like Saxony and Brandenburg. The Thirty Years' War began as a religious question, I think we can mostly agree on that, but it slowly morphed into a battle for dynastic, political and strategic influence, and in a sense the Peace of Westphalia reflects this. After 1648, we are told, violence did not break out in the name of such religious interests. There was not another Ferdinand II seeking to impose restrictions on the way people wanted to practice their faith, and no figure sought to wage war in support of such restrictions if they came from the centre. This led to a greater level of religious tolerance across Europe, and meant that states defined their interests in practical terms rather than in religious terms. This leads us in turn to another defining aspect of Westphalia, its impact on the state system. The term used is Westphalian sovereignty, and even today you can find references to us living in the post-Westphalian system. The term essentially means that early modern Europe developed to respect and accept a ruler or polity's sovereignty 
over a certain patch of land or a group of peoples. This respect for borders, for sovereignty, and apparently also for nationality, led to greater nationalism within Europe, as states defined themselves along national lines, and broad federal polities, like the Holy Roman Empire, went out of fashion. When Westphalians want to examine its importance, they thus can generally connect the rulings made in the Peace of Westphalia with the progressions in European history and statecraft, where a reduction in religious intolerance leads to the definition of state interests along political grounds, which in turn leads to greater independence and interaction among states, and less of a reliance on bodies such as the Holy Roman Empire or the Papacy when a state is looking for a direction. The state was made sovereign in 1648, Westphalians claim, because that is where our concept of how borders work and the national rights of states originated. The three major agreements that historians normally point to at the Peace of Westphalia, so the real standout principles of the peace, were the following. Number one, all parties would recognise the Peace of Augsburg in 1555, in which each prince would have the right to determine the religion of his own state, the options now being three rather than two, with Calvinism added to Catholicism and Lutheranism, as we said. Number two, Christians living in principalities where their denomination was not the established church were still guaranteed the right to practice their faith in public during allotted hours and in private at their will. Number three, which we sort of just examined, there was to be a general recognition of the exclusive sovereignty of each party over their land, peoples and agents abroad, and responsibility for the warlike acts of any of their citizens or agents. To me, I have to admit that the Peace of Westphalia's comments on religion are by far the most significant. The very act of enshrining the three denominations is one thing, but insisting that citizens may continue to worship as they wish in public and private, regardless of state religion, is another level of freedom altogether. Just like that, it no longer mattered what the religious status of a state in the HRE was. You could just worship the way you wanted either way. Such a concept was groundbreaking for 1648, especially for it to be guaranteed across the Holy Roman Empire within a peace treaty. Just think, 20 years before Ferdinand II was drafting his Edict of Restitution, which aimed to manipulate the terms of the Holy Roman Empire and turn back the clock on the Reformation, granting vast tracts of land and rights to Catholic subjects over their Protestant brethren. Ferdinand II had tried, if we want to somewhat simplify matters, to make Catholicism the state religion of the entire Holy Roman Empire. In doing so, he managed to offend the two Protestant electors in Saxony and Brandenburg, and play a large part in pushing them into the arms of the Swedes and other powers in the years that followed. But still, Catholicism was a mission for him, and he was egged on by his Jesuit confessors, who assured him that he was not bound by any prior agreements to unbelievers. By 1648, Ferdinand's son, Ferdinand III, was arranging to recognise and accept the fact that three denominations definitively existed in the HRE. The apple, it seemed, fell miles away from the tree. The Holy Roman Empire and much of Europe thus went from harbouring suspicions and antagonisms 
towards one's neighbour, merely on the basis of their religious persuasion, to an early form of live and let live. It was as though Europeans had learned their lessons. Religion was not worth tearing Europe apart for again, and no amount of warfare could ever turn back the clock on what had happened since the 16th century, when the schism between different ideas of Christianity first emerged with such force. The 1555 Peace of Augsburg had recognised the existence of two creeds of Christendom and had essentially tried to let each ruler reign according to his professed faith. Westphalians say that the Peace of Westphalia did this, but that it went even further. Not only was Calvinism to be added to the original two creeds, but citizens now enjoyed freedom of worship even if that worship differed from the official religion of the state. Through such rulings, it almost seemed as though religion, one's private life, and the policy of state were becoming. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Separated, and that such concerns no longer needed to colour one's perception of what it meant to live in a certain state. Freedom of religion, here in its absolute infancy, was nonetheless breathing its first desperate gasps at the Peace of Westphalia. It had taken 30 terrible years of war to reach such a stage, but it seemed to those who signed on the dotted line that, in the widely spread dominions of the Holy Roman Empire at least, religion was now a private matter, and the state could carry on regardless of what one believed or how one chose to worship. Well, that is, as long as one's belief system fell within the accepted trilogy of Catholicism, Lutheranism, or Calvinism. So the acceptance and tolerance of those divisions within Christendom was now enshrined in Westphalia's new system. What of the other significant ruling? This act stated the intent of all states to now manage their own sovereignty, and that to have sovereignty meant to be free of interference from another state. But what did this mean in practice? Such a ruling was a tacit acceptance of the new order of things. 
that a Holy Roman Emperor could no longer control most of Europe as he had done, since the German states of the Holy Roman Emperor, and additional states in that confusing polity, were now declared to be sovereign, in control of their own destinies. They could make peace and war with whomever they wished, and they had control over their resources, not the Holy Roman Emperor. After 1648, according to Westphalians, Ferdinand III had no more legal control over his vassals and the HRE to command them to act in any sphere than the King of France had. Such a change sounds rather basic and unremarkable to us now, but if we think about what went down in the Thirty Years' War, and remember that during that conflict, Ferdinand II, and his son as well, expected the support of all German princes and other states to fight the Habsburg fight, and if such support wasn't forthcoming, an army or concerned messenger would soon be at their door. The way I like to think of it is, after 1648, Ferdinand III stopped being the Holy Roman Emperor, and instead became the Holy Roman President. If you still need a bit of convincing that this sovereignty ruling thing is all it's been made out to be by historians, then look no further than Leo Grose. Leo was a historian writing in the 1940s, just after the end of the Second World War. It was Leo Grose who watched as the United Nations was crafted out of the peace, and it was Leo Grose who looked at what had just happened across the world and thought to himself, this seems somewhat familiar. He wrote an article in 1948, 300 years after the Peace of Westphalia had been signed, entitled, somewhat unimaginatively, The Peace of Westphalia, 1648-1948, and within a few short years redefined how modern historians viewed everything that had happened before, after, and during the Peace of Westphalia. In the process, he became the man most responsible for putting early modern Europe into boxes, From that point onwards, most modern histories would begin after 1648, because from this point onwards, Leo Gross had said, Europe resembled such an inherently different animal to the one that had existed before. Westphalians say that it was a modern Europe, guided by more modern ideas, and it wasn't bogged down by its religious baggage, divisions, inherited since the late Middle Ages. Leo's viewpoint does make sense, because in many ways Europe after 1648 was quite unrecognisable. War no longer seemed a religiously motivated venture, now it was a political expedient. Sovereignty did not exist in the ambitious dreams of all powerful emperors or popes. It now existed on paper and was vested within the rights of every prince or king, no matter how small his domains. Faced with such incredible, even abrupt, alterations to how states interacted and worked together or against each other, Leo Gross was able to coin the term post-Westphalian system to talk about everything that had happened from 1648 up to the present day, and the classification has largely stuck ever since. To explain what happened after 1648 with respect to sovereignty, Westphalians put forward the simple idea that without a Holy Roman Emperor or Pope claiming universal authority, something else would have to fill the void left behind. Having abdicated his authority vis-à-vis the HRE, but still holding to tradition, 
Ferdinand III could expect to see the states and microstates of the empire pull together to concoct something resembling German cooperation in the name of peace. Those states outside the Holy Roman Empire, Ferdinand hoped, would be bound by their own concerns regarding peace and cooperation. Of course, other states were negotiating at the Peace of Westphalia, and Ferdinand wasn't the only one trying to shape things. The French would have mightily benefited from the emperor no longer claiming lordship over their lands, or monarch, as would the Dutch. Though the official change in the emperor's status can be seen as simply making official what was already de facto the situation in the Holy Roman Empire, it was still important because it legally freed states across the HRE to forge ahead themselves, while it freed states outside of the Holy Roman Empire from worrying what the emperor would think of treaties made with minor German princes. After 80 long years, Westphalians claim, the Holy Roman Emperor, Spain and the Dutch had arrived at an agreement whereby the United Provinces would be forever recognised as independent. Spain would release its former colony from its grasp and the Emperor would accept that his former Burgundian lands had divorced themselves from him. If nothing else, at the very least, the period of war that had characterised Europe in some form or another for eight decades was now at an end, and the Peace of Westphalia ushered in this new peace on top of granting the rights to make peace or war with any other power. This is why Westphalians claim that the peace may have even encouraged German states and their neighbours to engage in more diplomacy. Now that the Emperor's influence had notably withdrawn itself from their daily lives, they had to fill the void with their own power and the ambitions of their own local dynasties. With more diplomatic activity, also went the genuine need among states to ensure peace after the Thirty Years' War. And thanks to the Peace of Westphalia, all states had the rights imbued within them to act independently. No approval was needed, the only thing holding you back from treating with foreign powers now was your ambition and your ability to make an offer they couldn't refuse. Political independence was a natural result of such a change. Westphalia had apparently paved the way for a greater stately freedom. To make this freedom work, statesmen and diplomats worked feverishly to create a replacement system for the old one of imperial authority, and they landed on stately sovereignty. If all states were made equal, then nothing would hold even the smallest state back from joining a friendly coalition, and in the process rectifying the European balance of power. Forced to create their own security in the absence of an emperor, it was also natural that the concept of the balance of power should become so important. As an idea, Leo Groves insists that, while it may have been important before the Peace of Westphalia, after it, and without the emperor in play, it assumed a new level of importance. Left to their own devices, to a degree, states were always going to ensure that states were balanced in coalitions against one another, or at least that the smallest states grouped together, and in many cases sought foreign support for the sake of added military security. These foreign potentates, no longer forced to deal with the emperor's authority, discovered that they could now request far more beneficial and straightforward terms. Perhaps most notably of all for the balance of power though, the emperor from 1648 onwards could no longer claim to be the most powerful man in Europe, 
and neither could his cousin in Spain. It used to be a simple question. While the Holy Roman Empire was certainly unwieldy at the best of times, it was meant to command the allegiance of every prince within it at times of war or diplomacy. According to Westphalians, though, this allegiance was no longer guaranteed after the Peace of Westphalia, and without this guarantee, the balance of power in Europe became suddenly more nuanced, less certain, and a topic of constant concern of both foreign potentates and German princely states. Faced with such changes in sovereignty, diplomacy and practical power in Europe, some would even lament that before the Peace of Westphalia, everything had been far simpler. Those that don't see the Peace of Westphalia as a big deal probably haven't quite grasped just how different Europe was before it, Leo Gross claimed. The peace represented the beginning of international law between states, because they now looked to one another to settle disputes in an amicable manner. They looked to cooperate and to arrive at agreed compromises, and Westphalian negotiators sought to create binding agreements, where states would have to commit to submit their problems to a neutral third party, rather than simply wage war, in the event that two parties felt they had a problem. Such a commitment to peace is palpable, and of course understandable, when we consider what Europe had just been through, but it certainly falls a little flat to read how hard they tried for such measures here, when we know how suddenly Europeans would ignore such arrangements and just return to the old way of waging war again. Leo Gross acknowledged this unfortunate fact, and he also compared the attempts to bring in international law and an arbitratory system to that practiced by the League of Nations, where states could report their problems to the League for arbitration. Both solutions, Gross admits, had similarly calamitous endings, but at the very least, Europeans would not war in the same state system that they had once warred in. Back to the whole sovereignty thing. We have to remember that the Holy Roman Empire and the Papacy had a rich history encompassing much of European thought, history, religion and practice. The Papacy was everywhere with its God, visible in its monasteries and in the provision of education, and it was represented politically by the Emperor. The Holy Roman Emperor claimed to be the divine figurehead under which Christendom would unite. It was he who was the supreme head over all Europeans, whether they lived in the HRE or not. No king, be he in France, England or Spain, could claim to be superior in spiritual or princely rank. The Emperor's authority in spiritual terms came from the Pope, A tenuous relationship for sure over the centuries, but one which grew closer out of necessity thanks to the Reformation. The Emperor's political authority was sourced from the citizens he could draw upon to obey his calls for loyalty and service. In return, the Emperor would protect them. One should obey the Emperor not just because he was powerful, but also because it was God's will for him to sit in that chair and if you messed with the emperor, you messed with the papacy, and if you messed with the papacy, you messed with God. Claiming lordship over Europe was of course difficult when you had so many independent and ambitious princes running around, but once the Reformation hit and divided Christendom, many saw the eclipse of the emperor's power occur as soon as they made the connection. The emperor may have been supported by the papacy, But Lutherans didn't answer to the papacy, so why should they answer to the emperor? 
The answer was that some continued to out of an awkward sense of tradition and loyalty built up over the centuries, but more immediately for those princes on the wrong side of the papacy by the early 1600s, their concern and reverence for the emperor was based upon the tacit acceptance of the fact that the emperor was the most powerful man, divinely appointed or not, and that he was backed by the most soldiers to boot. This power was massively reinforced by the splitting of the Habsburg families and the subsequent pooling of Spanish and Austrian Habsburg resources. There was no law which stated that a Habsburg needed to be Holy Roman Emperor, but since roughly the 1400s, there had rarely been a time when such a figure had not come from that family. Thus, the Emperor's power had been shaped by the unfolding currents of history, By the Thirty Years' War, this was coming to a fever pitch. Bowing to the Emperor because he was the most powerful lord in the land was one thing, but pledging yourself and your country to fight for him for thirty long years would make anyone pause and say, Wait, are we sure there's nobody more powerful than this guy? Are we sure there's no better option? Quite simply, by the time the Peace of Westphalia came around, the Emperor could no longer compel allegiance by the threat of force, and he was too depleted to persuade even his formerly loyal supporters, think the Dukes of Bavaria for instance, to continue on the fight. In response to this acceptance of the way the wind was blowing, Emperor Ferdinand III made a breathtaking leap towards modernity. Not only did his agents agree to accept that the Emperor could no longer hold a claim to universal monarchy over Europe, but approval was also given to accept the end of the papacy's overarching claims to universal authority as well. By so doing, Ferdinand III cut off his spiritual superhero cape. He would no longer have the stamp of approval by the papacy, and thus a major pillar of support for the Holy Roman institution of emperor was torn down. When you put it like that, When you consider how much history the Peace of Westphalia was leaving behind, it really does bring it home. Ferdinand III could have been as intransigent as his father, dragging his heels and refusing to make such a peace. We could never imagine Ferdinand II essentially giving up his right to claim lordship over Europe. That was Ferdinand II's claim to legitimacy. Without such a claim to justify his actions, would the future Holy Roman Emperors even be able to draw on any kind of power base? Ferdinand III gambled that they would, because Europe was changing into a different kind of animal, one where peace would be kept not by claims of universal monarchy or divinely ordained imperium, but by the balance of power. An agreement between states to certain measures of sovereignty, international law, and arbitration, a kind of system of checks and balances, whereby states now had authority over themselves, could create their own security, and didn't have to answer to the emperor or the papacy, or any other universal monarch, for the first time in a millennia. Territorial changes made such institutional changes necessary as well. The Dutch were at peace with Spain and officially independent, France had carved out chunks of Alsace and Lorraine for itself, and it had also gobbled up some forts along the Rhine. The Swiss were free from the Holy Roman Empire altogether, while the German states within the Holy Roman Empire have been massively consolidated from 900 insanely head-wrecking states into a still-disgusting 300. 
Under such circumstances, with more states ready to actively participate in European diplomacy and affairs, it was reasonable to imagine that Europe didn't need an emperor to tell it what to do. The papacy still protested, of course, though it was clear that Ferdinand III had long since detached himself from its concerns, not even agreeing to see the papal delegate until 1649. When Rome refused to accept the outcome of Westphalia and called the peace treaties a public act of disregard for the international authority of the papacy, its political representative on earth had already moved on. The war was over, Ferdinand could claim. Now it remained to pick up the pieces. It was time now to combine the German experiences of history with the national relief and goodwill from peacemaking to create a federal body of states bound to the emperor not by law, but by a sense of patriarchal, perhaps even familial, duty. Although the Peace of Westphalia suggested that Europe was entering a strange new era, Ferdinand III believed that little needed to necessarily change. He had made his concessions. Now it remained for German citizens to do the rest. If you're still with us after that, then congratulations, and I hope you've enjoyed the first installment of WDF Asks. In the next episode, we'll be looking at it from the other angle, and see if we can't pick apart Leo Groza's claims for Westphalian importance. Not to mention come up with our own bones of contention for why Westphalians are wrong, and why their beloved treaty isn't all that, after all. I hope you'll join me then. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you all soon. A level of stability not seen in Europe until the French Revolution dramatically ushered in a new era of stagecraft. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.